2: difficult to keep the line between the past and the present.
3: Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is
2: not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a Movie of the Week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a new release. I'm Keith Phipps, here this week with Scott Tobias, Tasha Robinson, and joining us from behind the scenes, producer Genevieve Kosky. We're all veterans of the film site The Dissolve, where one of our guiding principles was that no film exists in a vacuum, and that all culture is more interesting in context. So every other week, we're getting together to look over a new release and how it relates to a major movie from the past. Genevieve, what's this week's movie pairing?
1: We're recording this podcast shortly after the release of The Good Dinosaur, the 16th feature film from Pixar, and the second one to be released in 2015, 20 years after the release of Toy Story in 1995. The studio has come a long way since then. Pixar is now a familiar brand name like Disney. In fact, Pixar developed Toy Story with Disney, which after a lot of complicated legal wrangling and behind-the-scenes politics, purchased Pixar in 2006. Over the years, Pixar's technological advances let it create images no one could imagine when Toy Story hit theaters.
2: But in some ways, Pixar hasn't changed that much. Look at Toy Story and you'll find the company's core sensibility already in place. The film uses humor, well-rounded characters, strong visuals, and carefully doled-out pathos to tell a story about how we're defined by our dreams and by the bonds we form with others, and how time and outside forces threaten to change both of those defining elements. There's a direct line between the friendship forged between Buzz and Woody in Toy Story and the perils faced by the unlikely friends of the dinosaur Arlo and the K-Boy Spot in The Good Dinosaur. We'll kick off this week's discussion with a deep dive into Toy Story, talking over its animation, its storytelling, and the intangibles that have made Pixar a dominant force in filmmaking. Then, in the second half of this week's episode, dropping later this week, we'll bring The Good Dinosaur into the discussion, talking about how the two films relate, or don't, and how Pixar has evolved in the 20 years between their release. So grab a moving buddy, and watch out for Sid and Scud. We're headed back to Andy's bedroom, circa 1995. you got... It's now almost hard to imagine a world of animation before Pixar, but it wasn't so long ago. In 1994, Disney's The Lion King shattered expectations by becoming the highest grossing animated feature of all time. It continued the Disney renaissance begun in the late 80s and seemed to ensure that Disney would remain the dominant force in animation for the foreseeable future and that traditional hand-drawn animation would remain the norm. But Disney had already started combining traditional animation with computer animation. A company called Pixar, which had been creating graphics hardware, software, and short films for a few years, provided computer-aided assistance to Disney on several features in secret. But Pixar's contributions to Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin were more prominent, allowing both films to create textures and effects that wouldn't have been possible with traditional animation. And the technology Pixar pioneered helped The Lion King create shots that would have been prohibitively expensive just a few years earlier. That, however, didn't make Pixar's future a sure thing. The company, whose roots go back to the 1970s and whose history includes a stint as a division of Lucasfilm, consistently lost money for its heaviest investor, Steve Jobs. It also had an ongoing identity crisis. Would it make money creating graphics hardware, software programs, commercials? Pixar put out a series of acclaimed short films, but they were mostly seen by animation fans and Oscar voters. When Toy Story, the company's first feature, premiered in November 1995, it was accompanied by a certain amount of skepticism about whether computer-generated animation could sustain a feature-length film. Twenty years away from that skepticism, we can talk about the movie from a different perspective. So, without any further ado, let's get started. I'd like to talk about first impressions. Let me start with you, Genevieve. You were the target audience for this film when it came out. The rest of us were a little bit older.
1: Yeah, uh, I was 12 when Toy Story came out. So, uh, all right, guys. (laughs) A (laughs) a little little bit
2: older.
3: (laughs) Oh, my God.
1: Everyone's making faces at me. Yes, I was. I was 86 when it came out. (laughs) I was 12 when Toy Story came out. um, So I really only have the vaguest memory of seeing it that first time. But I know that I saw it in the theater with my mom. And while I can't be certain, I don't think that at that point I was really recognizing or processing that this was a different sort of animation than I'd seen before. Like, maybe I thought it looked a little different, but I think at that point I was more invested in the stories and the characters than this new type of animation. I think I just processed it more as a kid would than as a film, you know, cinephile would. So it was interesting coming back to it now. I do remember thinking of it as the, at the time as a Disney film. Because I came from a Disney family, you know, I grew up during the the Disney renaissance that Keith mentioned. So going to see the latest, you know, Disney animated feature is always a big deal for me and my family. And, you know, Toy Story was featured at Disney World and the Disney Store. So at that point, I very much thought of it as a Disney film. Going back this time, it was interesting to watch it as a Pixar film um, in the context of what that means today. And I'm sure we'll get into that a lot more. But uh, I want to hear from you guys who were fully formed adults when when Toy Story <laughs> came out. Well,
3: I, I, I was seventy, and then I started aging backwards, like in uh,
0: Benjamin Button. <laughs> yeah, exactly, your like Benjamin film. Button.
3: Nineteen ninety five, I was uh, <laughs> I was twenty four. So there's a little bit of an age gap so there. You were I was double t- my age. <laughs> I was double your age. Wow. Um, and I actually I have a very is. distinct memory. I mean, for one, context wise, uh, when I was uh, writing for a student newspaper. You know, I wrote a scathing review of The Lion King, which I called it a a horrible racist film. Uh, So I I was like the original deliverer of hot takes. Was it because of of the hyenas? It it was the the hyenas. Right. Exactly. Um. You know, but I do, I do recall you know seeing it with family, uh, extended family, a lot of us going, um, I, I'm not sure when did the film come out? do we November November? November, November I five. think maybe it was a Thanksgiving thing. We all went to the, to the multiplex together, and I think the idea was um, the idea was that we were going to entertain our nieces who were a little bit uh, younger than you were at the time. but what struck me then was just how entertaining I found the film. To my surprise, I think. Uh, I mean, I guess the Disney films sort of primed uh, you as an adult to resp- respond to them and, and to appreciate them. But uh, you know, I remember thinking, um, you know, there I was there with probably four generations of Tobiases, and uh, <laughs> and I, and everybody was really entertained by it, and the film, the film really struck a chord, and uh, I think it's something that that has kind of carried through with Pixar because Pixar has that depth uh, and speaks to adults and, 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 and kids you know, simultaneously. And that, that happened here too, and I think it certainly followed through with the sequels and the other films that uh, Pixar has made.
0: I was a film critic at the time uh, not a fully formed one or a fully formed adult I find I'm not sure I'm a fully formed adult now (laughs) Genevieve but uh, what I was much more so was an animation buff like a a really hardcore had very very strong opinions about animation and that had less to do like my my impression of The Lion King had very little to do with the racism or the, the it's ripping off Hamlet or any of the other things people got angry about it for me it was just it was such an exciting animation experience. So for me like the launch of Toy Story like I I went into that movie expecting to hate it because I had very strong feelings about computer animation. The computer animation of the time was very crude and very clunky. It was full of all of these very shiny, poreless things that didn't quite have weight to them and uh, like I I could see it developing as sort of this uh the buzz of the future thing and uh, like even having seen Pixar's earlier shorts I was not sold on the idea at all. I was so excited by the Disney Renaissance because I was a huge fan of uh, Japanese animation at the time. And, like, Miyazaki at that point had already made Castle in the Sky, had already made My Neighbor Tortoro, had already made Kiki's Delivery Service, Porco Rosso, and... When I was seeing Disney catching up with the idea of animation that both adults and children could appreciate, animation that didn't feel like it was talking down to its audience, and animation that was just so lavishly, beautifully realized, I kept waiting for the Disney Renaissance to catch up with the Japanese ideal that... Adults watch animation, too. And I was waiting for, like, the first American film that would actually be animation primarily for adults. And Pixar didn't achieve it with Toy Story, but I I went into that movie just really with my hackles up, with my shoulders around my ears going, this is the wave of the future and I hate it. Mm-hmm. And I came out going... I did didn't hate that and I don't know what to do with it I mean it was actually a baffling experience for me and I wasn't nearly as sold on it back then as I am now and maybe it was just because of that shock or maybe it was because I hadn't really seen how the Pixar mechanism can move people and these these characters weren't so tied into my conscious as well as like the collective pop culture conscience but I, like my experience then and my experience now were very different mm-hmm. partially because I was at such a different place in my, my life which well, I imagine everybody else yeah. was too
1: Well, right. and Pixar is in a totally different place too it, it, it's interesting watching it now because you can see the seeds of so much of what would become you know the, the quote unquote Pixar touch to note a book that Keith is holding over there <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it's you know like I said you can see the seeds of so much of what the company would go on to do and but you can also recognize how rudimentary it is on many levels you know there's the human characters like they are they are rough by today's standards you know um, and there's kind of a sort of plasticky sheen to a lot of the movie that is you know looks very rendered to our modern cgi trained eyes you know none of that takes away from the ambition and innovation that the toy story displays but it's difficult to say that the animation necessarily holds up to modern standards because you know it doesn't but you can still appreciate it for you know the starting point
0: although the characters visually have changed very little mm-hmm. i i rewatched toy story and then i immediately rewatched toy story 3 mm-hmm. and i was expecting there to be like a huge visual step forward in the characters and while the human characters are very different the backgrounds are very different the ambition of the like the camera movement the spaces are very different the characters really don't look that different well that's
1: like why toy story was such a smart way to do this first feature film to make them about toys and to make things that don't that don't move in a recognizable way like it's really interesting watching the quality of human movement in Toy Story. It looks like a video game cutscene. There's a certain like jerkiness to it. But the toys, they look perfectly natural because toys don't move like that you can make it up you know in, in quote-unquote natural e- exactly yeah it's like oh that that's what a stuffed cowboy string pull toy would move like because we don't have any sort of frame of reference for that
2: yeah i, I think i mean that actually how how does it look now is sort of my next question but I, I i one one thing i went back and looked at a bunch of old reviews and what's interesting about so many of them is that i expected to read all about how people reacting to the technology. But if you go through like the major reviews like Janet Maslin and The Times, Richard Corliss and Time Magazine, Owen Gleiberman, it's all like, they, 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 it's like, oh, it's like the first computer animated film. And here's why it's a wonderful story. And here's why this works. And here's why that works. Roger Ebert spent a little more time talking about his appreciation of the technology. But there's one point in the review where he just goes, but enough of this propeller head stuff. Let's talk <laughs> about the movie. Because it kind of like, and that was kind of my reaction in a way, too. Where like I went in ready to enjoy it because I'd seen, I'd enjoyed pictures of other, other shorts when I watched, like, you know, you the Spike at Mike's Festivals of Animation oh, yeah. things. Yeah, that was a regular thing for me. And they mm-hmm. were kind of staples of that. And so I, was, I knew the name enough to, expect good things. But I guess the, the the getting back to the 20 years later thing, what I didn't expect was this was the future. I thought that this would be maybe this company would continue to produce some computer animated films that would appear side by side with traditional hand-drawn anim- animation, which was the case for for a while, but now, you know, in, in 2015, you know, try finding a hand-drawn feature.
0: I mean, I never thought that, and it was because Disney had been integrating computer animation more and more into its films, and I was reading so many interviews about, you know, how much easier it is to use this computer uh, imagery to create the herd of buffalo in Lion King to create the ballroom in Beauty and the Beast. The ballroom in the Beauty and the Beast was the reason I hated computer animation. And mm, Really? but you and, don't like the ballroom? No, oh God, it's uh, it's <laughs> so spinny. It's it's very very plasticky. It looks very fake. It doesn't integrate, and it doesn't have any of the warmth of a hand drawn thing. But uh, the fact that the fact though, that Pixar was uh was the one doing that, I was not aware of that until you brought that up, Keith. Yeah, and
2: Aladdin too. Like Aladdin, like explicitly credits Pixar. They worked on a couple other ones like Rescuers Down Under, but like Disney wasn't really in the big hurry to publicize that there was computers involved in these in mm-hmm. this animation stuff for for fear of people kind of kind of rebelling against. It. well but,
0: they were by the time of the lion king because i remember that right. the uh the buffalo or wildebeest whatever the heck it is wildebeest, the wildebeest stampede <laughs> being like a huge it was like a huge talking point for them yeah so and i wonder if that was because by that time they thought it was the animation was good enough that they wanted to trumpet in it instead of being yeah. quiet about
2: it well and also it became i think it was a point where it became too obvious to Talking mm-hmm. to not talk about like Aladdin has some very obvious computer effects and and like there's like I, f- I forget the exact statistics but there's like three multi-planar camera camera shots in The Little Mermaid and there's like scores of them in Lion King because it's easier to fake with with computer animation mm-hmm. than to actually do like. I mean, not to get too technical, but the multi-planar cam- camera is like a story high, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, and it takes forever to to, to work with.
0: For, for me, like that, I, I you can't underrate that that Pixar ability to tell a, a story that children can understand, but tell it in a way that adults can emotionally experience. And that was something like the Lion King with uh, Mufasa's death touched on something that I didn't think. Uh, you know disney animation was necessarily going to go to that was what had given me the hopes that eventually we were going to see like a disney film for adults so there's stuff that happens in toy story that that is really as you say kind of the rudimentary uh, mm-hmm. version of pixar's like deep well of emotion mm-hmm. but it is some pretty like serious emotion it is fairly touching at, at a couple of different points in that I think, movie. I
2: think Buzz's Existential Crisis is one yeah. of, one of oh, the, sure. the most affecting s- sequences in that movie.
1: I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you're right. I am just a little depressed. That's all. I I, I can get through this.
3: Oh, I have a sham! <laughs> Look at White me! Bite. I can't even fly out of a window! But the hat looked good. Tell me the hat looked
0: good. You know, one thing going back and rewatching it, uh, which I had not realized, is the degree to which this film more than, than, especially more than the later Toy Story movies, like relies on Randy Newman Mm -hmm. to sell the emotion, like both in that sequence and in the opening, the You Got a Friend and Me sequence, all of what you know about the relationship between Andy and Woody and why it drives the rest of the story is summed up in that song and the montage of the two of them that you see during that song. And Pixar's moved away – and we can get into this with Good Dinosaur – Pixar's moved more and more away from that feeling of you have to have a song to sell the emotion and you don't need anything but a song to sell the emotion. Mm-hmm. But you see that a lot here. But for me, it was Toy Story 2 is where they like, really hit the mark. And that really shocked me because you know they were going to the sequel well so quickly.
2: It, it shouldn't have either because it's not a movie that, that... – Invites a sequel immediately, Mm-mm. much less um, you know to with another one on its way. Uh, but um, yeah, those those are great. You know, it's it's, it's interesting to see the, that this is a world, their first world that it created is also the one they keep returning to.
3: Mm. Boy, I don't know. I just think the first one is just, is the grand leap forward. I mean, this, <laughs> this I just feel as though we're talking about. Toy Story sort of created that. Just started the visual style. It had a lot of elements that would would re- recur later. I feel like this was this was the big revolutionary moment. I didn't feel like anything that happened afterwards was quite as strong. Even though I would say, and maybe this is something we can been talking about, there are there are certain kind of there are elements that are maybe uh, less familiar. Like um, I, I think it may be Disney influence, which is which are jokes. <laughs> uh, uh, you know we, we talk about we we immediately go into the emotional resonance of Pixar films, and this and Toy Story certainly has that to a degree, but there's it's nothing like what we're seeing now where we're where we're all expecting to cry every time we go see a Pixar movie <laughs> mm-hmm. uh uh what what Toy Story has, i think even over the other two stories are jokes, lots and lots of jokes and lots of mm-hmm. adventure and fun and entertainment i think uh
1: and visual wit. Uh, Yeah, like, which is something I think we don't see in Good Dinosaur as much, which I'm, we'll, I'm sure we'll get into in the second part of the episode.
0: Yeah. And Good Dinosaur is comparatively a very sincere film where there is mm-hmm. there's so much more sense in Toy Story, I think, of animators goofing. But
1: Toy Story has such an advantage being set in, you know, more or less our world and being able to, you know, reference recognizable things.
0: Yeah, one of those recognizable things being this, I had not noticed this and I've seen this film a, a fair number of times, I but I did not notice until this, this point that when the characters are stuck in uh, the the terrifying house of Sid, the next-door neighbor who destroys toys, they have the carpeting from the, the Shining, the Overlook in the, oh, the really? Shining. Yes. That. Yeah, when... Um, when Woody's fleeing his room, there's this overhead shot, and you look, you're looking down on this carpet that's the same carpet that you were looking down on that's seen over and over, especially in room 237. Two, yeah. And then when I when I looked it up, I was like, "Am I? Are there other things like this that I'm missing?" Apparently, the number two three seven crops up over and over in the Toy Story films. It's oh, like, really? Yeah. Leon Crich, who's, uh, you know, had a long history with Pixar, apparently is a huge Shining fan and, like, continued to put hidden 237s, uh, you know, after the the number of the room where something significant happens in The Shining. I don't want to spoil the film if you haven't seen the film. But, uh, yeah, that just the, the visual reference to the carpet caught me completely by surprise, and I had to loop back and watch it a couple times. I guess we should probably
2: talk about kind of how unlikely this film was that it actually happened and turned out as well as it did because i mean not to get into a long history of it but pixar um at one point like i referenced it before but there was like is this a company that makes Hardware, because they made Pixar computers for 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 computer graphics, or is a company that makes software. And like John Lasseter was kind of kind of snuck in because uh, they always had you know ambitions to do animation, and and John Lasseter was a former Disney animator who was stuck in a sort of interface technician, I believe, was his first title mm-hmm. there. And they brought in people that we now know very well, like Pete Doctor. And Andrew Stanton and, and and the late uh, Joe Ranft were all the people who did the story for Toy Story. They had, didn't have screenplay experience. They, they, it was the idea of whether or not you can get to translate what worked in shorts to feature length. At one point, they were doing supposed to do a TV special, but it became obvious that if the the, the energy it would take to make a TV special, they may as well make a, a feature film. Um, and you know they got guidance the, along the way and, uh, Joss Whedon was, was a major played a major part in the screenplay. It was Jeffrey Katzenberg, with whom they'd later become famously quite estranged, who said "Make it a buddy movie," and had other like sort of key suggestions uh to, to keep it on track and i I't know it 's just like a, one of those things where the, all this talent comes together at the right time and i I was watching it i was I was wondering, would we even have computer animation or you know, if we had computer animation, would it be on the scale that it is now where it's sort of the dominant style if there would never been Pixar? I mean, Pixar is like a very – seems like a very disruptive force in, in, in a really
0: interesting way. I can certainly see that. I've read some interesting interviews. I'm, I want to say with Lassiter, but it's hard to tell because I've, I've read so many interviews with so many Pixar people. Um, but somebody- And conducted them and conducted them. I uh, this was not one of the ones that I conducted though. This was probably one that I did as research for one of the ones I conducted. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty sure it was Lasseter talking about that first short that they did. Uh what is it? Andre, Andre The Adventures B and, of Andre and Wally B. Wally B yep. And how that was basically something that they like Lasseter didn't direct that but he was the animation director and they storyboarded it and created it as a short basically to highlight the software. Uh, that they, like, the the RenderMan uh, suite. Um, and then they took it to trade shows, and at trade shows people would come up to him and say, yeah, but what software did you use to make it so funny? Uh-huh. Like, mm. the, it was just assumed that there had to be, like, some kind of machine process that they were, you know, here's the button that you hit to make uh, the shiny yellow surface, here's the button you hit to make funny jokes. And, <laughs> like, even from the beginning, people couldn't understand that this was, a creative process, not, not simply a mechanical software process. And, I mean, that just fascinates me. They had to have a juxtaposition that nobody else had at the time between these, like, pro- as Ebert apparently says, propeller heads. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's kind of
2: equivalent of gear heads, though. It's, I think it's the airplane equivalent of gear heads. Oh, I'm okay. Fair but, enough. But people who reacted, who didn't really quite understand that first short, by the way, included George Lucas. It's part of why he unloaded Pixar. Uh, he didn't.
0: And I bet he's kicking himself now because of all the money he
1: lost. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He could have been rich. I know. <laughs> we'd still be talking about George Lucas today. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, the question, the uh, the hypothetical of whether or not you know we'd have computer animation today is obviously a hypothetical that we can't answer. But I do think, keep listening to you quote some of those reviews um, or, or talking about how the reviews kind of glossed over the technological animation, it also made me think about how Pixar kind of taught us about this type of animation and I think a lot of that kind of goes to the DVD and uh renaissance of of the late 90s early 2000s too and featurettes and all that I remember like ever like the first probably six or seven Pixar movies, watching all those making of featurettes and learning so much about what this means. Like, if to a a layperson, what computer animation is and what is involved in it. And it's not just pushing a button and, you know, now your character jumps or whatever. You know, the idea of you know, layers and textures and lighting effects and all that. It's a new visual language that filmgoers had to kind of learn. And I think Pixar was what taught them about it.
2: Yeah, Pixar's DVDs and Blu-rays are, are kind of an example of how you, how you get it done. And and another thing I learned is, is that in, in researching this was that, that some of the, the choices were made to show things that to do things that could not be done with hand drawn animation, like mm-hmm. plaid shirts, mm-hmm. plaid shirts would be almost impossible to do with hand drawn anim- animation. But you can with computer animation, you can do that, and it's not necessarily something that we think of as as lay people, but. You know, I think maybe subconsciously consciously we register that stuff as things we haven't seen before.
0: Yeah, I, I feel like my feeling that, you know, of course computers are going to take over animation, of course it's all going to look like this someday. When I was watching The Lion King, comes from a naive belief that, uh, you know, using a computer makes it easy. And everything I learned about, like, the difficulty and complexity of computer animation in those early days came from those kind of mm-hmm. Pixar shorts.
1: Yeah, and it's almost gotten to... Well, no, it has gotten to the point now where whenever a new Pixar movie comes out, like there's sort of a discussion of what is the big visual leap this time, mm-hmm. you know, with Merida's hair or Sully's fur or Finding Nemo's water. Like, there's always in, in Good Dinosaur. I'm sure we'll talk about the natural world and how it's represented there.
3: Well, I think I think they're they're pursuing animation's true dream, which is to become a live action movie. <laughs> um, that, that, was, that was that's my that's my Good Dinosaur joke, uh, and, and enjoy that. But I, I one simpler. Explanation too about maybe some of the reviews that Toy Story got and and just reviews of animation in general is that it is a it is a different language and mm-hmm. it's a, it is a hard language to describe it 's a hard language for me to describe it 's not my strong suit, which is why i 'm being a little bit quieter on this <laughs> a, edition of the of the podcast because uh, it 's um, Very know, little
1: of your beloved violence little, little <laughs> of my,
3: well i mean you know in japan they still they still deliver in Japan. But you know what I'm saying? It's it's uh, it's it's a tough. It can be a tough language to describe, especially when we haven't really experienced it uh, as we as we do as much with to- with that first Toy Story. Um, yeah,
0: and I, I mean it's it's almost miraculous the degree to which they picked the exact right topic to teach us about this language because they're dealing with these characters that are inherently made out of plastic, and so they not only have the right texture to them to be rendered, you know, in 1995 and uh, 20. 15, like in the same way, and still look just as realistic. There's something really both creepy and awesome in Toy Story about how easy it is to make these toys look dead. You know, to when they when they kind of turn off when people are around, all it takes is like letting the letting the puppet go limp and taking the the focus out of its eyes, and you get something that really does look like a toy lying on a surface. And I think that's just the fact that they found somebody somewhere along the line must have said, you know, the are the surfaces we're creating look like plastic. What can we do with that that's an interesting story? And again, you have got, you know, you've got that juxtaposition of here's what our software can do. Here's what we can do creatively that nobody else had going on at the time.
2: Does anyone else want Toy Story 4 to be about Sid? You know, what happened to Sid? <laughs> I mean, oh, I, I,
0: hey, I think that Sid uh, is the garbage man in <laughs> Toy Story Three. Seriously, he's oh, wearing, really? oh, yeah, Bob I've pointed. Point, Bob, my husband, pointed this out to me. He's wearing the same skull T-shirt.
2: Oh, really? Yes. Interesting. But but, but, but I, I, I feel like Sid was a, in some ways underappreciated because he's a very creative kid.
0: He is a very creative kid. I want to know what happened to the toys that he built. Mm. Yeah. Because you know? after they scare the ever living crap out of him, like I don't think he's going to take them back into his room. But all of the all of uh, you know Woody's buddies just pack into the car and leave. Mm. And it's kind of like thanks for helping us out, guys. We're out of here forever.
2: There's like a Wrath of Khan to be made. I think with, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, the,
1: Spider Baby. Uh, it, no, there's uh,
3: it, as an adult, it's 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 Island of Doctor Moreau, it's, sure, uh, or Island of Lost Souls.
1: I like to think that Hannah uh, Sid's sister took in all of his toys and had tea parties with them.
3: She's responsible for my single favorite uh, bit in the film, which is which is uh, <laughs> which Mrs. is call- Yep, calling, calling. <laughs> <laughs> and him just ca- and that just kind of continuing him, him just so. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm
2: Mrs. Nesbitt now, yeah.
3: <laughs> I think you've had enough tea for today. Let's get you out of here, bud. Don't you get
0: it? You see the hat? I am Mrs. Nesbitt. Before we move on to a new topic, Keith, I wanted to actually circle back to something you said, which was uh, Joss Whedon's involvement in this. Mm-hmm. That, along with the the Shining reference, was something that caught me by surprise that I'd completely forgotten about. And you say that he had a heavy involvement, and I'm curious if that comes from the Pixar touch or other research you did, because I, like I know he was doing a bunch of like script doctoring at the time and just like joke writing. Was he like heavily involved in this from the beginning? Uh,
2: the Pixar touch we keep referring to <laughs> is is the the book The Pixar Touch by David A price which is which is a pretty good history of, of, of Pixar up to like 2009 or so a lot's gone a lot's happened since then. Uh, but the sense is that I get the feeling that yeah he, he came in and was a lot of the actual um, structural work in screenplay I get the feeling he was like it's, I don't think it's like an x-men situation where you can point to like the two lines that he wrote I think it's a little more heavily
0: involved than that. That's fascinating. I feel like that's something I need to do more research in. Is there's got to be an interview where he talks in detail about, about that experience? I think
2: I think your interview with him from years ago is a pretty good resource for it, if I'm not mistaken. Talking and,
0: about but, Pixar, I don't remember. Not Pixar,
2: but I remember his, his script doctor days. Oh about, yeah, his script yeah.
0: doctor days for sure. I there are there are lines from that interview that I still quote to this day because he's so funny and because his uh, expression was so weird. But He's not I, a
3: doctor. He's credited. He's a right. credited screenwriter. Right, yeah, he's
0: a credited sc- – well, yeah, he's a credited screenwriter here. But, I mean, he – when I did that interview, I looked at the IMDb to see what he was credited with and just kind of went through a list of, like, what did you do on this? What did you do on this? And most of it was that kind of X-Men. Here are the two lines from it that they kept. So when I saw him come up on uh, Toy Story, my first thought was, did he just punch up the jokes or was he involved? And given – that Pixar tends to grab talented people and hold on to them with like all four feet. You see the same names cropping up over and over, becoming part of their brain trusts. I mean, I understand Joss Whedon having his own things that he wanted to go do, but it is sort of curious to me that they didn't have more of a relationship.
2: My understanding is basically, well, I think he probably had his own things he wanted to go do, but but it was the way the credits break down is the story is credit to John Lasser, Pete Doctor, Andrew Stanton, and Joe, Joe Ramp, who are big Pixar people. The screenplay is credit to Joss Whedon, Andrew Stanton, Joel Cohen and Alex—I won't pronounce his last name correctly—but Sokolow and Joel Cohen and Alex Sokolow are kind of like Hollywood veterans who were brought in to, you know, give it a professional shine. Basically, they—they had—they um, went on to later to do *Cheaper by the Dozen*, *Garfield* the movie, *Evan Almighty*. Don't laugh. These, you know, they're, they're, these movies got <laughs> I was made. was a real I mean, to you know, trajectory. These are solid professionals, but um, but yeah. the
0: see what computer animation can give us is the *Garfield* movie.
2: True. Well that, I mean we talk about uh, about
3: animation catching up. I mean Pixar has obviously advanced but looking at Toy Story it's like well you know kind of these you know mid budget animation uh, you know computer animated films they don't look better than than Toy Story. No, like I any. disagree. Really? I, yeah. I, like mean, you, I, I,
1: I mean, I think even like your, you know, your blue sky animation has, that's, has that's like that's not
3: mid budget though. Those are hu- those are huge, huge. Oh, so
1: you mean like Delgo and stuff? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I,
3: and just some stuff you see on TV. I mean, they, they, you know, they don't look. They don't oh, look okay. Than, well, they don't look well t- than... TV
1: is a whole different thing. I, yeah. I thought you were just you know but those are real trashing on your non Pixar animation right, houses, which, which which does sometimes rankle me yeah um, oh
3: that that i that i do that
1: no 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 just in general like i i I feel like the impulse to compare every computer animated movie to pixar is sometimes frustrating it's It's kind of
2: unavoidable though in a way i mean it's it's they were first they're kind of the gold standard um, and the track record is a lot stronger than any other person doing animation any other house doing animation it's kind of like i guess it's like saying it's not dom perignon well and it's also
1: harder to you know recognize and appreciate uh different house styles you know a, a DreamWorks style or a blue sky style which may not you know be to everyone's taste but there may still be something there to appreciate
2: it occurred to me also watching this that that the joke they would not do was the, when um, Mr. Potato Head makes reference to a hockey puck, and there's a hockey puck there, and it's sort of <laughs> like a, a, a wink that this is Don Rickles doing the voice. It's not something that Pixar would never do. Now, funny joke though. Yeah. You is.
0: know, it's sort of a funny thing that does come out of that studio to studio comparison is there are a lot of people out there who do not make a distinction between like a Pixar movie is means a computer animated movie. Mm-hmm. There are people who don't know the difference, and you know i have i got no use for these people these people can get <laughs> off my stoop but there's also a whole subsection of people who define any good computer animated movie they assume it's pixar mm-hmm. and i find that phenomenon just fascinating so you see something like wreck it ralph and people really assume that that's a pixar movie i love
1: pixar's how to train your dragon <laughs> that was a pretty good pixar movie yeah.
2: <laughs> before we wind down this first half of the of uh, uh, the podcast we should probably talk about the voice talent behind it which is um Good choices, I think. Tom Hanks, I, I, I can't, well, at this point, I can't imagine anyone but Tom Hanks yeah. and Tim Allen and a lead and the supporting cast all down the line is, is is really great, too. It was almost Hanks and Billy Crystal, by the oh. way. Billy, oh, wow.
0: Oh, wait, he was down. in Monsters, great. Yeah, don't ugh. Yeah, but he's, yeah, Monsters, <laughs> yeah, but he's still, I mean, the shtick that he's doing in Monsters, Inc. works for that character. It really, really no, wouldn't have worked not? here. Yeah.
2: yeah, I mean, and also the, that character evolved to, Fit Tim Allen because at one point he's supposed to be more like sort of a sort of like over the top, very self you know, self consciously heroic. And and Allen's voice performance is more like a cop on the beat, so it kind of mm-hmm. like, tailor the character to fit what he was doing with the voice as well. Repair
3: my turbo boosters. Do people still use fossil fuels or have you discovered crystallic fusion? Well, let's see. Uh, we got double A's. Watch yourself. <clears throat>
2: oh, who goes
3: there? Don't shoot.
2: It's okay, friends.
0: Do you
3: know these life forms? Yes. They're
2: Andy's toys.
0: All right, everyone, you're clear to come up.
3: I am Buzz Lightyear. I come in peace Oh I'm so glad You're not
2: a dinosaur The choices are not Necessarily expected Wallace Shawn As the T-Rex Is such an (laughs) inspired (laughs) Bit of casting Jim Varney Is a slinky dog Oh a slinky dog Yeah
0: Who took took over For Jim Varney I'm not sure Somebody I'd never heard of His name was Blake Clark He was somebody I'd never heard of before But I was actually Just watching one of the uh, feature rats On Toy Story 3 And they did an interview With him where he He was a friend Of Jim Varney's Mm -hmm. And like he had a Jim Varney sort of impression that he would do with Jim Varney um, so he and he gets very emotional talking about the loss of Jim Varney and like how unexpected it was and how doing the voice like makes him sort of hear his friend again uh, which I think is very touching.
1: Even Pixar's recastings are emotional. <laughs> Gosh.
0: I For me Wallace Shawn like as perfect as uh, the Tom Hanks Tim Allen pairing is Wallace Shawn is just you know, he's the voice that you go to for, like, that level of hyper-anxiety. And for me, that's that's the voice casting that just kind of makes this group of friends...
1: I, I treasure Tom Hanks as Woody just because exasperated Tom Hanks is my favorite Tom Hanks. <laughs> and we, it, it made me happy to hear Tom Hanks as Woody again. And, and forget- contempt, like he actually mm. has yeah. like
0: does this sort of bristling contempt that is not really part of the. Uh, I mean,
1: what is it? kind of a jerk in this. Yeah, I was yeah. peevish. He a lot is, of them yeah. are like kind of all the toys are are jerks <laughs> oh, for in sure. Toy Story.
0: Yeah, um, they're very they're like they're judgmental and they're they're very very quick to like mob the action they're, 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 they're like the springfieldians you, you know like. <laughs> you
3: wouldn't handle buzz cutting in on your playtime could you woody didn't want to face the fact that buzz just might be andy's new favorite toy so you got rid of him but what if andy starts playing with me more woody huh you're gonna knock me out of the window too i don't think we should give him a chance
2: here he is man, Let's string him up by his pull string I got in his hand. that that's actually scaled back to make them more likable because there was there's this incident um, like two years before it came out when Disney basically shut down production because the, the test reels, the, you know, the characters were much less likable and they felt like this, this, this film wasn't going to work. So um, that is the, I think they found the right balance uh, with the final film.
0: I would love to see, I mean, did they fix that in scripting or did they fix that with the vocal work? Cause some of the material here, like could, could be just a little bit harsher and actually be really unpleasant. There's mm. so much of this film is defined by jealousy and resentment and manipulation and, you know selfish greed like i could see this script being the problem if the performances were just a little different
3: keep in mind however that the toys are all concerned that some other toys are going to come along and uh you know relegate them to the to the dustbin so there's a bit of competition inherent in there there's a bit of jockeying uh so so you know when buzz gets knocked out the window yeah you know it's, it makes a little bit of sense dramatically that Woody would want to do that.
0: You want to hear a, a political metaphor That's uh, that uh, like people would be throwing tomatoes at me if I made this uh, in public? I'm I, sorry, you're about to make it in public uh, on our podcast. I, I'm, a, I'm about to make it within the studio where nobody can actually get to me with, uh, with tomatoes. There was a point uh, fairly early on in Toy Story where... Where Woody is saying just with this like supercilious condescension, it doesn't matter how much we get played with. And they're like, yeah, says the guy who gets played with all the time, who's the favorite. And I was like, we've got, and now we've got all lives matter. Hashtag all lives matter. That's it right there. All toys matter. All toys matter. (laughs) It doesn't, it doesn't matter that. Some of us, meaning not me, don't get played with. Uh What matters is, well, really what matters is that I get played with. And like the knee jerk level of like entitlement and resentment and condescension that is in his voice when he makes that speech. I was like, that's the all lives matter movement right there. He is a white male. I I, I wanted (laughs) to actually avoid using the phrase white male privilege in order to avoid that knee jerk. But yes, that is what I'm talking about.
3: He's a toy as well. He's a, just a white to male toy. This, just to take this out of the whole metaphorical realm. <laughs> <laughs> He's a toy. He likes to, toys would rather could, uh, could
0: you do that with the arm flailing and the the Tom Hanks he is a toy voice? <laughs> Cuz to that's one of the best moments. This,
3: this is a very surprising detour. Before we get too political, perhaps we should <laughs> wind down this
0: half of the podcast.
2: Uh, we're, we'll move on to feedback, and, and perhaps some of you would want to leave some feedback for Tasha for uh, for uh, that, that, that aside. Bring the tomatoes. Here is some, we got some really good responses to our last episode, uh, which was about Battle Royale and the Hunger Game films. Tasha, why don't you share some of that with us?
0: All right. Well, here's an email we got from Ben S. Uh, let's just read this quote. I don't know if you'll agree, but I've always interpreted Battle Royale as an almost satirical response to young adult media, or maybe the adolescent experience as a whole. When I watch it, I see all the angst, romance, anger, and intergenerational tension of a high school drama raised to its most extreme level, until any lingering realism gives way to the film's darkly comic absurdity. It becomes a world where events that only seem like life and death to a teen, such as a crush on a girl or a teacher having it in for you, actually become life or death. But of course, the warped reality that emerges is so weird and unbelievable that it throws the actuality of teen life into sharp relief. Things aren't all that bad, and all the shitty stuff you have to deal with isn't going to kill you. Although maybe it feels like that sometimes.
3: Ooh, that's a really good response to the film. <laughs> I, you know, it, Rachel sort of brought that up. Did a did a really good job of kind of talking about Battle Royale as a film about um, about teenagers in a way that Hunger Games isn't. But I but I, but it is interesting to think about it about the film as that that is being the primary text of the film it makes sense uh their, be, their behavior if you um yeah i don't know it's all there in the letter but uh, i thought that I thought it was very cleverly uh i think that's a very clever interpretation
0: I did too. I mean, I, I think one of the things that becomes interesting about Battle Royale is the degree to which people feel freedom to express their, their deep-seated hidden crushes and emotions uh, to each other because they're about to die. And I kind of feel like that is, as Ben says, kind of throwing all of these emotions into sharp relief by making them revealable literally only on pain of death, but also just like giving everybody the wherewithal to finally come out and say what they're feeling. I think think might feel like catharsis to people who are actually holding back these kinds of emotions.
2: Uh, Scott, would you like to share another email we, re- we received?
3: I would like to share <laughs> one. Uh, so Dante K. wrote in to flesh out our understanding of how battle royale fit into Japanese history, specifically the clashes between student protesters and the authorities in the late 1960s. This email is too long to share in full here, but we'll post it on nextpictureshow.net. Here's the gist in the meantime. Dante writes... There were many incidents of students barricading themselves in the schools, boycotts, class walkouts, strikes, and some instances of firebombing. Clashes with police became so frequent that the government passed laws giving university administrations more power for dealing with students, which included harsh penalties for protests of any kind. Because of this, the idea that the government may get to a point where they outright kill students to keep them in check becomes a very real hypothetical.
0: I I want to read the rest of the letter. I'm, I'm fascinated. <laughs> it's, good. it's good. stuff. I mean, yeah, I mean, I knew that it, uh, that it tied into history, but not to that degree. Like, I knew that it was specifically about that— that feeling that apparently every generation gets that the youth are running wild and this is going to be the last generation. But I uh, like, as far as the specifics, the political specifics, I didn't know about that.
2: Well, we appreciate all your feedback and would love to hear more from you about this in future episodes to share your thoughts about toy story, the good dinosaur or both. You can leave a short voicemail at seven, seven, three, two, three, four, nine, seven, three, zero, or email us at comments at next picture net. We may feature your response on a future episode. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Next Picture Show. In the second half of this week's conversation, we'll take a closer look at Toy Story as it relates to The Good Dinosaur, and consider what both tell us about Pixar's evolution over two decades. Plus, you'll get to hear this.
3: Yeah, they're all they're all, they're good. They're all gr- very good dinosaurs. <laughs> um,
2: look for that later this week, or better yet, subscribe to the Next Picture Show on iTunes and follow us on Twitter at Next Picture Pod, so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Also, if you get a chance, give us a review. That helps. Until then, remember the claw is our master. The clock, clock. You're gonna see it's
3: our you a me. You got a friend in me You got a friend in me You got a friend in me